1: This is a CBC Podcast.
0: Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. This time, securing some of our most important systems in an increasingly networked era. We look at the future and fragility of our electrical grid, modernization, decentralization, and cybersecurity. And how to stay secure amid the booming ransomware industry. When the power goes out, it can be a major inconvenience. But nearly 770 million people around the world have lived their entire lives without it. For the remaining 7.2 billion of us, our safety, productivity, comfort and convenience depends on it. If you lived on the eastern seaboard in August 2003, you no doubt remember North America's largest ever blackout. What caused 50 million people to lose power in nine seconds? Or more recently, in 2021, there was the Texas power crisis that left millions without heat, water, and electricity for several days.
2: Pushing the power grid beyond its capacity, leaving millions unable to heat their homes. Freezing temperatures. Have...
0: It paints a jarring picture. The technology that powers modern life, electricity, is vulnerable to severe disruption. And our aging power grids may not be able to handle the energy needs of our future.
3: I've been working on energy policy issues for many years, and I would say modernizing and improving our electricity grid is imperative. Now, the question becomes, why? Well, number one, whether we're talking about artificial intelligence, whether we're talking about the digitalization of society and or decarbonizing our societies, the reality is electricity demand will increase. And the reason why, too, is because climate change is happening here and now.
0: This is Alexandra Mallet. She's an associate professor at the School of Public Policy and Administration at Carleton University.
3: I mean, whether we're talking about floods, the forest fires, uh, ice storms, tornadoes, etc., basically we have 20th century technology for a 21st century world. According to Alexandra,
0: the key to a more sophisticated and resilient electricity system is decentralization.
3: Basically, you can divide it in terms of neighborhoods. You can divide it down to particular buildings and what have you, but it's like everybody has their own individual power plant. I guess the conventional way of thinking about electricity, you know you have your uh, nuclear power plant at the center and the long transmission lines down to the houses, etc. This model, you can think of little circles, the circle being a house, a building, a university campus, a neighborhood, and so they're all interacting different ways and, and can connect and disconnect.
0: The idea is that by establishing more self-sufficient microgrids, there will be less of a chance of widespread power outages. But with countries, cities, businesses and other institutions pledging to reach net zero emissions, there's also some concern that our power grid won't be able to handle future electricity demands.
2: It's
3: complicated because so on the one hand, technically speaking, we can say, all right, well, actually, we are starting to uh, make some inroads. That means we're starting to see some technology advancements in energy storage. We're starting to see uh, what's called the rise of smart grids or intelligent grids. And so the technology is becoming more sophisticated. However, I did mention it's complicated. And this is where the important role of politics and vested interests come into play.
0: Uh, I want to get to that in a moment. Can we talk a little bit first, though, about the distinction between centralized and decentralized? So what are some of the arguments against the current centralized electrical grid model?
3: Yes. Well, okay. So number one, now I don't know where uh, you were, or if you remember back in 2003, when we had that major, major blackout Basically, almost all of Ontario, um, various states, etc. In the,
0: in the dark is where I was.
3: <laughs> yes, okay. There we go. Uh, I was living in Ottawa at the time. Same thing.
1: Air conditioning is not working. Everybody's panicking on the, on, the, on the top. We don't know what's going on.
3: There's no subway. There are no buses. There are no
4: streetcars. Nothing uh-huh. over now.
3: And so basically, the economies of scale say, oh, well, we need to build things bigger and push these electrons down the line. However, what can happen, and we also saw it in the ice storm of 1998, and these events are happening with increasing severity and frequency, if something happens, it can have ripple effects throughout the various grids. So you're starting to see this movement and desire for what are called microgrids whether it be a neighborhood microgrid, or let's just say I'm off-grid my house, etc. And so you can disconnect and connect to the larger grids. However, the legislation is actually antiquated in that area.
0: So can we talk a little bit more about that? What, What are some of the things that get in the way of decentralization?
3: Well, you may have seen Ontario is basically going big on nuclear right? They're putting lots of investment towards uh, the Bruce nuclear power plant. Um, They're refurbishing Darlington, and they're currently deliberating whether or not to refurbish Pickering. So on the one hand, that makes sense. If we want to move towards electric vehicles, if we want to build these battery plants, kickstart industry, even in the steel industry, we're starting to see the use of electric arc furnaces. And some people are even talking about electrifying heating. But some of the criticism is that if we go big or go home on nuclear, will that close avenues and opportunities for decentralization?
0: Mm, I see. I understand there have been some interesting tests in Parry Sound, Ontario. What can communities like Parry Sound teach us about decentralizing the electrical grid?
3: A number of communities are interested in the possibility of being a self-contained unit in pursuing renewable energy options and and, and also pursuing electricity options that are more localized. I've been working with some indigenous communities in Northwest Territories, and for them, they are actually really keen towards renewables because number one, often they're more modular. And so it's more amenable to their environments. And number two, they have concerns about uh, supply lines with respect to the forest fires in Northwest Territories, a community that I work with, uh, Coolville Lake, so once they shut down Yellowknife, it had ripple effects because nothing was going. Often we'd go from Edmonton to Yellowknife and onto the communities, and so they didn't have groceries for two weeks, for instance. And so a lot of communities like Parry Sound and and others say, okay, you know what? We really need to reevaluate how we're getting electricity. And so how does this
0: idea of decentralization fit into the the broader idea of the smart grid? So what is a smart grid and how is it related to decentralization?
3: Well, in order to make this happen, meaning the potential for more decentralization, like let's say I want to put solar panels on my house, fine and dandy that I do that. But let's say actually I produce um, extra electricity and I actually want to help my neighbors out. In order to be able to do that, you need a lot more sophistication. And it's starting to happen. And in that vein, it's basically integrating the electricity system with information and technology systems. And so that's what they often call the smart grid.
0: So that I can feed power back into the system. It doesn't have to be a one-way street from the grid to me.
3: Exactly. Yes. And, and you can kind of do it at will for instance. So, so if you actually need it, you know, as long as you make sure, okay, as long as my house is okay first, then you can uh, feed back any extra.
0: Which sounds great, but I know that there's this idea of the utility death spiral. Can you talk a bit about those concerns when it comes to smart grids and decentralization?
3: So basically, if people say, you know what, the conventional way of, that I'm getting electricity isn't working for me, so I'm going to join a cooperative, buy some solar panels, etc., at the end of the day, the electricity utility still has to provide power for people. And so as less people draw from it, they have to increase the prices for those who remain, which means it it pulls more people away and so on and so on.
0: Right. And if I'm already on a lower income, maybe that's why I don't want to have the solar panels in the first place. And now I'm getting charged more for my hydro every month.
3: Exactly.
0: So, all this sounds great. Why, why don't we just decentralize, have smart grids? What are some of the political considerations that come with pulling this off?
3: So, this is another complication of Canada. Basically, electricity tends to be under the purview of the provinces. There are instances when the federal government gets involved, for instance, in these pilot projects, as I said, or if electricity crosses provincial borders and so on. But the way that our electricity systems have evolved has been Pretty much like silos. So this is why you find that often uh, people say Canada is a little bit like the European Union in the sense that you have fossil fuel heavyweights as well as uh, low carbon heavyweights. So if you look at Alberta and Saskatchewan, heavily carbon-based provinces, and yet compare that with British Columbia, Manitoba, and Quebec, who basically have low carbon systems, as well as Ontario, for instance. And so you you have this infighting. And then you know the federal government says, well, if we give Alberta special treatment, then you know every jurisdiction in Canada is gonna want special treatment. On the other hand, one could argue it really isn't fair to expect Alberta, which as I understand it right now, 84% of their electricity does come from carbon resources. How can you compare that, say, to somewhere like Ontario, British Columbia, which are very, very low carbon?
0: Laura Young, and right now on Spark, we're talking about sustainable energy grids and the potential for smart grid development in Canada. My guest is Alexandra Mallet, an expert on the design, implementation, and evaluation of sustainable energy policy. She argues decentralization is the key to making our current system more resilient, but strengthening grid reliability could mean slowing the integration of lower emission, renewable forms of energy like solar and wind, making it difficult to balance these sometimes competing needs.
3: As the mother of two gen setters, (laughs) climate change does come up a lot in conversations. And, and, you know, young people are really concerned and and concerned that we're not doing things quick enough. Right. And and so if if we want to decarbonize, we need to do it now. On the other hand, having seen various policies go awry, I actually think it's not a bad idea to do things a little bit more slowly and with intention. I think by virtue of taking more time on the design, even if it's a slower rollout, I think you'll have increased social acceptance.
0: Mm -hmm. I know that your students uh, contacted the town of Devon, Alberta, to conduct a green energy survey in the community. What were the results of that analysis?
2: So
3: what they found was actually there was potential for wind. And in fact, the town of Devon gave them land plants and figured out a potential good place to put it on as well as solar. And so interestingly enough, you know, one would think, oh, well, you're in the part of the region where oil and gas is so prominent. And yet there was still strong advocacy for the adoption of renewables.
0: So are things that we can learn from that to apply to other communities across Canada?
3: Uh, I think so. And this is where I mean, I guess I'll go back to some of the earlier research I was involved with, and it's something called socio-technical fit. And what do I mean by that? I'll give you another example where basically another group of students was looking at Grand Prairie, Alberta. And hey, what if Grand Prairie, Alberta were to, I don't know, uh, the people living there, maybe they could adopt, you know, 50% uh, electric vehicles. So they were doing all the analysis on how would that work, etc. And so this is where it becomes, all right, we need to understand the demographics of the town. And there, basically, you can see that the bulk of people living and working there use pickup vehicles. So if you're going to think about moving the needle on electric vehicles and what have you, rather than support, say, sedans and Teslas, it's important to meet people where they're at.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what do you make of Ottawa's draft regulations to clean up the country's electrical grid?
3: I mean, I've been working on climate issues for 23 years. And to be honest, this has been the most active federal government that I've ever seen on this issue. On the other hand, we are also working in an environment where, you know, Climate change can be framed as a, as a wedge. And we live in a federation, so the federal government can only do certain things, right? And what they can do is they can look at these regulations. And so that's what they're doing in terms of trying to move the needle. But I guess I would argue that in addition to focusing on regulations, it's also important to look at the incentives, right, to incentivize provinces and territories, et cetera, parts of the country to adopt. to to help them.
0: But how concerned should Canadians be about the rising cost of electricity brought on by public sector attempts to combat climate change?
3: A lot of people have said that if we don't do anything, basically it will cost us a heck of a lot more in the long run if we don't do something now. So I'll give you an example um, with respect to Ontario. I know after the derecho of um, May 2022 that hit Ontario.
4: They were never seen like this heavy wind and the uh, rain. The storm, the sound of the wind was so powerful. I looked out and like the water was going horizontal.
3: In fact, Hydro Ottawa had commissioned a report by Stantec that looked at the potential of catastrophic winds. And so they saw that, oh, this this could happen. Well, this is where maybe the governments can come in and say, you know what? You need to number one, assess what your climate risks are. And number two, come up with a plan in terms of how you're going to mitigate some of those risks. Conventional economics doesn't capture some of these costs. For instance, one reason why nuclear and large-scale hydro are so attractive is because it's just a lot cheaper. However, those prices don't capture resiliency. Maybe, you know, if I had a microgrid or my insurance could capture that.
0: The federal government has set a target of making the electricity grid net zero by 2035. So how optimistic are you that Canada will meet its net zero targets?
3: I actually think on electricity, I totally think it's doable. If we really want to tackle it, what we really need to do, you know, is is look at transportation and buildings, which is what we're doing. And so the extent to which we can start to electrify some of these things, I think it's definitely doable in terms of moving the needle. Having said that, You know, you look at provinces like Alberta, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, etc., which do rely on carbon and are starting to transition, it's important to think about fairness and equity issues. One criticism of one uh, popular federal government program called Green Homes favors basically people who have detached homes and who are homeowners. Well, what about people who are, you know, new Canadians, maybe living in apartment buildings, or maybe a millennial who lives in a condo and purposely wants to live in a condo to have a, a lower carbon footprint. So how come they can't benefit, for instance? Mm-hmm. Alexandra,
0: thanks so much for your insights on this.
3: Excellent. Well, lovely to talk to you, Nora.
0: Alexandra Mallett is an associate professor at the School of Public Policy and Administration at Carleton University. I'm Nora Young, and this time on Spark, we're talking about the security of some of our most important systems, like the power grid we rely on every day. We've heard about the vulnerabilities of our aging centralized electricity grids, but there's another threat too.
2: Very determined attackers who are willing to put in significant investment in terms of time and money to create a malware that can, you know, do reconnaissance, patiently uh, gain an understanding of the system. So there is time to deploy a targeted and very effective attack.
0: This is Deepa Kunder, professor and chair of the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Toronto.
2: Um, My research lies at the interface of cybersecurity, complex networks, and critical infrastructure.
0: From a cybersecurity perspective, Deepa says there are three things that pose the most immediate risks to our electrical grid
2: you've got complexity so that really increases the likelihood of weaknesses in the system because there may be emergent properties things that you're not prepared for and then it's highly connected so you have access to different parts of the grid from different parts of the world from different parts of the country And things are very collaborative. We have consumers today who can be more participatory. They can sell energy to the grid. And when you have that collaboration and that sharing of resources and infrastructure, you even have the ability to exploit those weaknesses. So the weakness, access, and the ability to exploit really creates vulnerabilities.
0: So what potentially kinds of threats are we talking about here? Are we talking about somebody shutting down the electrical grid? Are we talking about blowing it up?
2: It's always been a threat blowing things up. That's a physical threat because this is a critical infrastructure. And any time you have something so critical to the welfare of a society, you do, of course, have bad actors and and threats to such a system. Uh, but oftentimes, it really depends on the goals of an attacker. If it's something like a nation state, the objective may be to create widespread blackout. I mean, you you see this repeatedly in the Ukraine, Uh, first in 2015, then in 2016. And there were successful attacks on that grid. And then most recently, even in 2020, but the attack was thwarted. So yes, oftentimes, it is really to create a large scale disruption. And when it comes to an electricity grid, it's really about destabilizing it and creating a blackout.
0: So you mentioned Ukraine Are there other sort of examples of real cyber attacks taking place now, or are we still mostly in the realm of the hypothetical?
2: But no, I mean, there there have been other kinds of cyber attacks as well. You know, the SolarWinds supply chain attack in 2020 is uh, one example. And for those who don't know, SolarWinds is a major software company that provides tools for network and infrastructure monitoring by many multinational companies and even government agencies. And the attack essentially added malicious code into one of their software platforms. And SolarWinds is basically considered to be part of the supply chain for these multinational companies and government agencies. And adding that malicious code really wreaked havoc to a number of computer systems. Uh, For example, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security was affected, uh, Department of Commerce and Treasury. Uh, So it really had a, a significant effect. And most recently in 2021, there was the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. And here, this is a pipeline that basically moves oil from Refineries to industry markets. And the attack crippled their operations, requiring a shutdown of a lot of the affected airlines and consumers. Uh, and really, it, it resulted in a declaration of a state of emergency in the United States.
0: Right. And how did the risk change as our grids become smarter?
2: That's the interesting thing. You know, we, we often hear about energy security, and that's a little bit of a different thing, but it's really one of the motivators for why we really need cybersecurity. Energy security is really about accessibility to energy, and it relates national security uh, with the availability of natural resources, and that includes things like affordability and attainability of these natural resources. So to make this happen, you basically need energy sources to be diversified, to be decentralized, And to be able to integrate and coordinate all of these kinds of things, you have greater dependence on information technology. So you need information sensors, data communication infrastructure, control and decision making. And these particular elements are what are vulnerable to cyber attacks. So it makes the overall grid more vulnerable to cyber attack.
0: And do the risks change as we start to introduce renewable energy sources into this mix?
2: For sure. The risks are constantly changing. The threat landscape is actually a moving target, and, and, and security is a process. When we start looking at renewable forms of energy, and I think we all agree climate change is of paramount importance. We need to shift our focus to more sustainable forms of energy production. Being able to integrate them into the grid that we have today really requires uh, more communications, more sense. Sensors, um, more greater autonomy. And definitely that dependence on high tech, these computer systems, uh, these computing elements creates more vulnerabilities and really increases your cyber attack surface. So one thing I always like to say is lowering our carbon footprint basically increases in many ways our cyber attack surface.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering, pursuant to that, if we have energy sources from many, many, many different sources, does that in itself increase the potential attack surface?
2: So when you have a diverse group of parties all sharing and, you know, collaborating, it does increase the chance of disruption. It increases the chance of a cyber attack because the threat landscape is constantly changing. Uh, the bar is constantly increasing. So security is very much a process. So we really need to incorporate cybersecurity principles into the design of these critical infrastructure systems today. The other thing is we really need to educate people because oftentimes people are the weakest link and they don't necessarily mean to be, but they are. And so the people who operate these infrastructures, the people who are naturally part of the energy ecosystem, and that's growing, as you mentioned, as you know, different people start selling energy and have their own generation stations in their homes, they really have to be educated to better be aware of keeping their own systems secure.
0: So when we're talking about these kinds of risks, does most of it still come down to, you know, the person who clicks on a malicious link or, you know, enters sensitive info into a spoofed email or are the tax also genuinely getting more sophisticated?
2: Yeah, it's it's really a combination of both. One actually leads often as an entry point to the other. Uh, So for an attacker to be able to infiltrate a system, there needs to be a starting point. And that's where the individuals who click on the wrong link allow that capability of attackers to gain entry. So if you look at um, something like the power grid, you can think of you know, it's evolution today as being one that integrates information technology. This could be computing systems, the enterprise systems, the cloud, where you have consumer information, kind of high level information with the operational technology. This is the ground floor where you've got the physical devices, you know, you've got the electricity, the transmission lines, the transformers, all the heavy equipment that actually generates transmits and distributes the power and the two are converging. So when you have somebody in the information technology side, an organization that clicks on the wrong link, it starts the process of malware infiltrating into the information technology. And then over time, as we've seen the way attacks occur, they start infiltrating, they create a command and control center, they try to navigate the system, learn more about the operational side of things, what the actual operational system looks like, and then sends that information back for determined attackers, often to create targeted attacks that are then deployed in the operational environment. So yeah, very definitely one leads to the other.
0: Is there a reason for us here in Canada to to be additionally concerned, given that our grids are so interoperable with the grids in the U.S.?
2: For sure. I mean, I think everyone really needs needs to be concerned at this stage. For one thing we we are as a country very much a uh, very proactive in keeping our systems up to date and definitely integrating and connecting to grids in the United States increases our attack surface for that reason. But in Canada we also are I think compared to many countries also quite educated and do invest in cybersecurity. So, you know, it's it's important to be cautious, but also it's important to embrace the resources that we have. Right. Decentralization
0: has been suggested as a possible solution to just the overall reliability of the grid. From your perspective as a cybersecurity specialist, what are your thoughts on decentralizing the grid to to better protect against threats?
2: Yeah, so this is true. Decentralization is useful. And really simply, it's useful because there isn't a single point of failure. So if, you know, one particular generation station or generation source is targeted, you still have the remaining. And being geographically separate, they are somewhat decoupled. So you have that redundancy in the system to help keep it going and keeping the overall grid environment more resilient. The thing I will say, though, is that decentralization also provides a need to coordinate things so that you can have just the right amount of energy supply for the demand at a particular time. And that balance really requires that coordination. And that coordination is what requires us to make use of more sensing, computing, and autonomy and control, which increases our cyber attack surface.
0: Can we talk a little bit about AI and all this? What, what is the role of AI in helping to protect or making it harder to protect our grids from malicious actors?
2: AI is a game changer. Basically, you could create an agent that can learn by trial and error. It can infiltrate a system. It can duplicate itself. It could be very patient. It could be stealthy. It can change its signature so it's not easy to detect. And so for this reason, the process of attack can be quite autonomous. Mm -hmm. You know, ultimately, I think we will have to harness AI also to help address these attacks. Yeah.
0: I mean, can you imagine a scenario where you're using AI for, you know, detecting irregularities in the system early on and maybe helping to thwart some of these attacks?
2: No, very definitely. And this is what research groups like my own really focus on today. Uh, So we are in a big data environment. You know, we have all these sensors, we have all of this connectivity. And um, a lot of times being able to detect attacks, that information is present. It's just blinded by the sheer volume of data. And this is where artificial intelligence is actually very critical and key. It enables us to harness the power of that incredible volume of information for specific tasks of early detection. It's fascinating work. Thanks so much for your insights on this. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me, Nora.
0: Deepa Kunder is Professor and Chair of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Toronto.
3: Hello, I'm Jess Milton.
0: I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. So far today, we've been talking about modernizing our electrical grid and keeping it secure. We just heard how cybersecurity plays an important part in that modernization. And for the rest of the show, we're going to stay on the security beat to look at other vulnerable systems. These days, cybersecurity woes can seem almost inevitable, particularly when it comes to ransomware. A ransomware attack hit the Toronto Public Library, one of the busiest library systems in the world recently, knocking out access to some services for over a week. But just because you know it can happen, doesn't make it easy when it does happen.
1: It's like you get robbed. Basically, we got robbed. It was a smash and grab.
0: This is Al Strathdee. He's the mayor of St. Mary's, Ontario, a town of about 7,000 people that was hit hard by a cyber attack in 2022.
1: So on July 20th, we were doing a backup that we do once a week, and our our IT tech noticed something was amiss, something had been compromised. A
0: notorious ransomware group known as LockBit 3.0 had locked their internal server, encrypted sensitive data, and threatened to publish it if a ransom wasn't paid within 10
1: days. Why us? You know, the first thing is, is, is why us?
0: Which is a pretty good question. Why Saint Mary's, a leafy town with limestone buildings and a picturesque river running through it, not the first place you'd imagine a ransomware attack?
1: We'll never really know because, you know, with with this virus, with the ransomware, they do wipe a lot of logs. So, So we don't know for sure, but we're fairly certain that there had been something in our system for quite some time. The virus is such that it's just like a knock on a door, and then it keeps knocking until another door opens, and then it moves to another door. But the reality is, is it's you know, we had a problem, a virus in the system, and we realized we had to, to basically get all hands on deck, get some help, and move ahead.
0: So tell me about the help that you got. Who did you work with to address the attack?
1: So... Unfortunately, there's been other people in the area who have been attacked, so I had some connections, and I was able to reach out to some peers that had been through this, uh, most notably the, the city of Stratford. Dan Matheson was a huge help, and so we were able to move to reach out and, and said, what do we do? What do you think? We engaged a law firm in London who does some other work for us, and they actually brought in Deloitte, who's you know, recognized as one of the premier ones in, in Canada in terms of dealing with this type of thing, and so we immediately got together in a way in a way we went on a plan.
0: Yeah. So what kind of support did you receive, A, from law enforcement and B from the
1: province? Very minimal, to be honest. They weren't as common as they are today reading in the news. And it's pretty fun. Like now, you know, Rogers, I can give you a list of, you know, sick kids hospital. There was five hospitals in this area that got hit recently. So it wasn't as common, which again, you know, you're you feel like you're on the Titanic when the, you're you're starting this. But as far as law enforcement, they said, you know, we're there to support you, but let us know how you make out and then we'll come and look at your stuff and sort of, you know, see how things go. So that there wasn't, from my perspective and my tier, I didn't feel there was law support. The provincial government, not so much either. Basically, the more concerned about the things I spoke of, you know, is the breach can affect and, you know, and cause litigation and cause harm as opposed to what can we do to help. Because, you you know, myself being naive, I had this feeling that people would be busting out our door to help us. Yeah, Not so much. Wow. In fact, not at all. I think the support of the government was more obstructionist than anything else. Really? That's my feeling. In what way? In that they asked a lot of questions and took up a lot of time during a period where we were under a lot of stress and trying to, to solve a problem and, and, and get an analysis of what had happened and where we we're going to go.
0: So how much damage was done to the community as a result of the attack?
1: Um, I mean, financially significant, very significant financially. But I, I can say that our IT people were excellent in isolating and, and what happened. And we really would have only lost probably a week of data that we could have rebuilt. You know, and the re, the reality is, is that there was some inconvenience for people. You know, you might not have been able to get online and book your recreational program uh, for a short period, or I might not be able to get an answer for you about something right away. But really no big inconveniences. In fact, most people were not that inconvenienced. There was financial hurt. And of course, there's probably reputational damage. The unfortunate part is we'll never know why. But it certainly was a very stressful time and a very interesting, because at that period, you know, it wasn't that common. But subsequent to that, it's so funny because you talk to people and they say, oh, yeah, we had one of those at work, but we didn't tell anyone, right? Because we don't want people knowing. And, you know, we're a big company. We're multinational. We just paid them.
0: Yeah. No, as I understand it, you chose to pay the attackers. Why? Why did you make that choice?
1: We chose to pay them because that was the advice of our lawyer, and you know, after a, a long analysis and a lot of arguing back and forth, which you know, I some things I guess you'll never understand, but the reality was is that we we could not be certain that there wouldn't be information leaked that would be damaging someone's reputation or something.
0: Yeah. How did the community respond when they found out?
1: So of course there was a lot of questions, um, but I will say that. I was really amazed that people that really understood what cyber attack means and and understood sort of the world we live in and the cyber world were very understanding. I, I got some very supportive emails. Mm. Most people in the community were shocked at, you know, the monies, but a lot of people were supportive and said, you know, you know, we hear about this all the time. What were they supposed to do? And the fact they told us from day one, we didn't hide anything. Right from the first get-go, we were like, We're gonna tell a story, we're gonna tell what happened, and we're not gonna blame people. We're going to fix this and we're going to be stronger going forward.
0: How concerned are you that St. Mary's might be targeted again?
1: I don't lay awake at night worrying about it. I mean, uh, it's a possibility. I I think on the bigger front, I think everyone should be worried. I think there's probably, you know, a lot of agencies and so forth that are, are vulnerable we were in the process of moving things to the cloud and strengthening our systems. And we're in a situation where we have to think of of technology as infrastructure, right? It, it's it's right up there with roads and sewers and stuff. It's it's very different and, and it's expensive, right, to be efficient. We had started, but we're small-based valley. So we had started chipping away, you know, a bit of money this year, a bit of money next year. So, so we were on the path. Unfortunately, we weren't there yet when we had the attack.
0: Mm-hmm. What kind of action would you like the provincial and federal governments to take to to help smaller municipalities, smaller organizations, really struggling with a cybersecurity response?
1: So, here, here's my opinion. I, I I think that there should be a national depository or provincial depository for information. Right, there should be a big vault in Toronto where we could keep tax bills and all sorts of certain things. Because the reality is, is they're putting a lot of yeah, they're putting a lot of onus on us to protect information or there should be a, some sort of support system as well. Like I told you, it was like a smashing and grab and there was nobody there to jump in. The Calvary didn't come and the Calvary still isn't there. But the reality is, is I think government needs to support us more because if they're going to put very onerous rules around privacy and they aren't going to protect us from liability in all circumstances, they need to help us make our system strong. And there's no reason that we can't share information and work together. Yeah. It's a tough problem. And, and I feel for, you know, a, a lot of municipalities because you can never be 100% sure. And, and they're out there. It, it's, it's, it's a bizarre world, the dark web.
0: Yeah. So, thanks so much for telling us about it.
1: Thanks for, for the chance to, to tell our story. And hopefully we, the whole purpose is that it helps others.
0: Al Strathti is the mayor of St. Mary's, Ontario. According to town officials, the ransomware attack cost the town roughly $1.3 million, including a ransom of nearly $300,000 in Bitcoin. With larger and larger ransoms being targeted at very big companies, ransomware has evolved into something of a criminal art.
4: They have people who are writing the software. They have people who are transferring money for them. They have people who are in charge of distributing the malware, selecting targets. There's even this idea of kind of customer support. They've got HR, they've got bureaucracy, and they operate at very large scale. They can make millions and millions of dollars.
0: This is Josephine Wolf, an associate professor of cybersecurity policy at the Tufts Fletcher School. She's seen how malicious code and manipulation have become big business with really professional organizations. So much for our cliché about hackers in basements. And if you don't want to get your hands dirty, there's even something called ransomware as a service.
4: So maybe you want to start a ransomware organization, but you don't actually know how to write malware. So you go to a ransomware as a service provider and you say to them, hey, I'd love to get some ransomware for you. And they provide the ransomware to you as a service. So you're sort of hiring them to distribute ransomware on your behalf. And then you take some money from the targets. They get a payment from you or a cut of the earnings. And it's a way of sort of making ransomware more accessible to a larger group of criminals.
0: And so where do people find these sort of marketplaces for ransomware? Like, Are there sort of trading hubs on on the dark web or what?
4: There are. There are illegal forums on the dark web for buying all variety of illegal things, right? You could buy stolen credit card numbers, you could buy illegal drugs, but you can also buy malware. And so
0: how do ransomware organizations recruit their talent?
4: A lot of different ways, and it depends on what kind of role they're recruiting for. So, for instance, we often see uh, people searching out colleagues or friends or former coworkers in some of these illegal online marketplaces where people discuss different strains of ransomware where some of these groups communicate and fight or agree with each other. Yeah. Um, but we also see a lot of kind of more unwitting people. Recruited into these groups, which I think is really interesting. There was a huge volume of chat logs leaked from a Russian cybercrime ransomware organization called Trickbot a while back. And one of the things they showed is that some of the people who they hire to write code or send emails for them are just kind of independent consultants who maybe don't even necessarily know exactly who they're working for or what they're doing. Um, And and one of the things we see with cybercrime organizations more generally is they they have these large networks of people who are like receiving payments and forwarding them on. And those people are often recruited just on kind of random job boards with ads that say things like, are you you trying to get back to work after taking maternity leave? Are you looking for part-time at-home work or things like that? And and often the people involved maybe have some inkling that what they're doing is a little bit shady, right? If you're receiving payments and forwarding those payments on, maybe, maybe it's occurred to you that that's not entirely legal, but who are often not really sort of involved in the inner workings of the organization or know a great deal necessarily about what's going on.
0: I see. So what do we know about the connections between some of the more prolific ransomware organizations and, and states like Russia?
4: So we, we know that a lot of these groups and the people who run them, and, and we've identified, and by we, I really mean the U.S. government has identified and indicted several of the people who run large Russian cybercrime organizations. We know that many of them have close ties to high-level government officials in Russia. And those can take a variety of forms, right? Some of them used to work for government agencies. Some of them are married to the children of very high-level government officials. Some of them have done various kinds of contract work for intelligence entities in the government. And what we generally see from the allegations out of the Department of Justice are, are these accusations that these cybercrime groups provide access or provide intelligence or information to the Russian government, not in a, a very formal way necessarily, right? Not not in the sense that you're on their payroll or there's a kind of constant degree of communication, but that when you are a cybercriminal operating in Russia, you depend really heavily on kind of The willingness of the Russian government to let you continue doing what you're doing. And if they come to you and they say, we need to see something that's on this computer that we think you might be able to infect, or we need to know what these people whose whose organizations you've managed to compromise are talking about, we do think that there's some intelligence, at least, that travels from the cybercrime organizations to the government.
0: Right. And the quid pro quo, presumably, is that the government turns a blind eye to what's happening.
4: Exactly, right. There are all these Russian cyber criminals who have been indicted by the United States government. None of them have been extradited by the Russian government.
0: Right, right, right. So over the past years, I understand that one of the most prolific pieces of ransomware that spread harm around the world has been CLOP ransomware. So what do we know about the details of, of the CLOP ransomware attack?
4: So Clop ransomware is one of these ransomware strains that spreads really, really aggressively, but also is being targeted at large organizations with the ability to pay. And this is sort of a historical evolution we've seen in ransomware where 10, 12 years ago, ransomware was just kind of being sent out indiscriminately to as many recipients as possible. And now, instead of doing that and charging, let's say, you know, $300 or $500 worth of Bitcoin to decrypt your files, you have organizations like the one distributing cloth that will send out really targeted phishing emails to high-level executives or employees at companies like Colonial Pipeline or JBS Packing, And then when they succeed in, in infecting those companies' computers, we'll demand enormous ransoms on the order of millions of dollars. And so that turns this from a kind of, low-level, widespread criminal activity to a much larger scale issue that's targeting much more critical infrastructure, right? It's how we see this spreading through hospitals, through energy companies. And CLOP is, is one of the strains of ransomware where we're seeing that kind of really pernicious targeting of, of organizations, which it's it's really sometimes, in the case of hospitals, say a matter of life and death, whether or not the computers are working.
0: Yeah. So, is there any sort of sense of, I guess you call it, honor amongst thieves? Like, are there are there cases where ransomware organizations will say, you know, these types of targets are off limits, even if they do have money, for example?
4: There are cases of that. Um, it's, it's a little hard to know how reliably they stick to that. This was a, a big thing back at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, there were a number of disagreements in online forums about is it ethical to be targeting hospitals right now at a moment when the entire healthcare system is under so much strain. And there were some organizations that even made sort of public statements: we will not be targeting healthcare clinics, but in some cases, you know, we will be targeting healthcare insurers or we will be um, targeting other types of organizations. And it's then, of course, a little hard to track. Is everybody actually sticking by those promises? Because you don't always know when you see a ransomware attack necessarily exactly who's behind it. And I would say the the general sort of notion of honor among thieves in ransomware is originally about who actually gives you a decryption key once you pay. Right. So So when people start spreading ransomware, a lot of people are paying. Some of them get a decryption key that works to unlock their files. Some of them don't. Right, Some of them, the ransomware attackers just disappear after they get their money or they send a decryption key, but it doesn't really work because they didn't make very good ransomware in the first place. Um, And so there's this idea of kind of, you know, the good ransomware purveyors are the ones who will actually do what they promised. And there are actually a lot of fights between the different ransomware groups at the time because there are ransomware organizations that feel that the people who aren't decrypting their victims' files are giving the whole industry a bad name and discouraging people from paying, (laughs) right? Because if I tell you, oh, don't pay that, I did, and I never got my files back, that's going to make it less profitable for everybody.
0: I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about the inner workings of the modern ransomware industry. Right now, my guest is Josephine Wolf, an expert in cybersecurity policy who advocates against paying cybercriminals the ransom they demand in the stressful aftermath of a cyber attack.
4: So I really worry about two things around paying ransoms. And the first is just the perpetuation of this business model. Right? every time somebody pays a ransom that, first of all, directly... Funds further cybercrime by that organization. They can pay for ransomware as a service, or rent servers, or rent botnets to distribute their malware. It's going to directly kind of contribute to attacking more people. But the the other piece of that is we know that a lot of these organizations are linked to the Russian government, linked to the North Korean government, even more directly. Are perhaps being used to fund the development of nuclear weapons. Are in some cases being used to fund terror. Activity, so I think that the payment of the ransom, even if you say this is worth it to me, right? I want this data back. This is this is money that I can afford to spend. Really creates a larger cycle where this continues to be a problem because other criminals are looking at it and saying, oh, this is profitable. I should get in on this. And where we are funding really dangerous sort of national security level threat activity in some cases. And it can be hard to know when you're making that payment, who it is you're funding. And so I think that sort of the norms that we've established around organizations paying in some cases, very large ransoms are really dangerous and really bad for us in the long term.
0: Right. And what's this thing called the no more ransom project?
4: So that's the project that the EU comes up with to try and help the victims of ransomware while still discouraging them from paying ransoms. And what it does is it collects all of the sort of ransomware decryptors that have been developed. So there are a lot of people who are working on trying to help figure out how do we decrypt your files without forcing you to pay the ransom? Can we write some software to reverse that encryption? Sometimes you can't if they're using really strong encryption, but a lot of the time you can Right, A lot of these criminals are not using the most high-level, most sophisticated encryption algorithms available. And so the EU pulls together a bunch of these different tools, and they make this this website where you can say, go in and upload the ransom note that you're staring at on your computer, and it will tell you, oh, we think this is a strain of such and such a program. Um, we're going to advise you to download this and see if it can be used. The other thing is a lot of these attackers reuse the same decryption keys over and over again. So it might be that somebody else has paid them, gotten a decryption key and shared it with the No More Ransom Project, and now you can just use their key instead of paying them again.
0: Right. But do you get the sense that most organizations that have had ransomware attacks know about these resources that are out there?
4: No, I think especially in the United States, where there are quite a lot of victims of ransomware, um, there's not very widespread awareness of these tools. And there's also a lot of shame and uncertainty around what to do when you're the victim of these attacks. Right. So the law enforcement community has been really advocating for please contact us, right? Please let us try to help. And I think because of that, they've been really trying to send the message for the past few years, we're not going to blame you if you pay a ransom, right? We understand sometimes that's the only option. Um, and and they've had some success, I think, in encouraging some organizations to reach out to them. But a lot of organizations really want to keep this pretty quiet and resolve it as quickly as possible. And, and therefore, I think often don't know what all the resources are. You're in a state of panic. You perhaps don't have access to a lot of computers because all of your computers have been locked. And so I think we, we need to do a much better job of sort of communicating ahead of time. Here are the first five things to do when you're hit by ransomware, instead of having people default to, I guess I should pay.
0: Right. This may be kind of a pessimistic question, but given the increase in in ransomware attacks, is there really anything that we can do to actually end the problem?
4: Yeah, I think there actually are, are ways that we can, at the very least, take a big dent out of it. Um, I don't know that we we ever really end problems in cybersecurity, but I do think we see changes, right? So, you know, the early days of data breaches are largely about payment card information. There are these enormous breaches of like 45 million payment card numbers. And then over time, eventually, the credit card companies shift us to microchip credit cards, which are a little harder to steal numbers from. And we we sort of see that shift, not doesn't go away, but it, it becomes a little less lucrative. Attackers shift to a new model. And I think that's possible with ransomware. I think the things that would make a big difference are really cracking down on the profitability. And that could mean a bunch of different things. So that could mean trying to make it harder for people to pay ransoms right? If you don't pay ransoms, it's not a profitable enterprise. It could also mean trying to really crack down on the cryptocurrency industry and say, we need to know a lot more about where these payments are going and who receives them. That requires some international cooperation. And so it brings us back to the problem we have now in which the countries where many of these criminals live are unwilling to cooperate with international law enforcement authorities. And we've seen some of that in the cryptocurrency space as well, which makes it hard to sort of follow the money in these crimes back to the perpetrators.
0: Right. Thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you. Josephine Wolfe is an associate professor of cybersecurity policy at the Tufts Fletcher School. You've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Sam Rui Samir Chabra, Megan Cardi, and me, Nora Young. And by Alexandra Mallet, Deepa Kunder, Al Strathdee, and Josephine Wolf. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
1: More CBC podcasts go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.